So, hey, how's it going? This is Tyler Knight, and I am the author of Burn My Shadow, a selected memory of an X-rated life, and I'm here talking with Riley, What is Real, uh, which I understand just released, and uh, you had a, a nice release party a couple of days ago, right? How'd that feel, knowing that uh, all these people came out to, to hear you talk and uh, relay your, your quite interesting life experience? It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a mixed group of feelings in that, you know, there's, there's some relief in knowing that in uh, all of my past endeavors, I didn't burn bridges. Uh, they are, they're choosing to judge me for the person they know, the person they've, they've been inter- interacting with versus uh, crimes that I committed 15, 20 years ago. So... You know, there, there's, there's a couple of things going on, and I'm, I'm still taking it, it, it all in. You know, <laughs> you've had a pretty interesting, uh, you've had a pretty interesting life experience, dude. Definitely pretty interesting. And uh, I mean, look, here, here's, here's how I see it with life. Either, either people accept you for who you are, or they don't. But you, you certainly can't change. Uh, you certainly can't change your what what whatever ha- might have happened in your past, and you certainly have no control over that. All you have control over is, you know, the man you are today and and whom you associate with today. Either people see you on see you and accept you based on that, or they don't, because uh, life is too short. Life Completely. is way too short. So uh, yeah, let's talk about the book. How did you how did you get that idea? How did that germ seed into your mind that this was something that you wanted to do? Uh, yeah, I, so. My first year of incarceration was spent in the county jail where I was still uh, pre-trial. Uh, so I had the the uh, the possibility of a life sentence sitting over my head for that whole year. Uh, I eventually took a plea bargain for various reasons. We were able to negotiate a plea deal and I was given a sentence of 10 years, eight months. So once I went off to prison. I would say this is about my second year of incarceration. I decided to reach out to a couple of folks that I was able to salvage phone numbers out of, you know, different different uh, cell phones that I was able to eventually get my numbers out of. And I called my buddy, Scotty Khan. Uh, so I had to listen to him for about five minutes, rip it into me. Uh, you know, just what the hell were you thinking? How, you know, <laughs> You know, you kidnapped a guy in Bel Air. What the hell were you thinking? So after that, I gave him his chance to moment to blow off some steam. <laughs> we're talking Scotty Khan, uh, the the actor and uh, playwright Scotty Khan. Yeah, yes, yes, um, yeah. We, we grew up together. We came up together in boxing, being around LA guys, and and uh, so you know, giving him that moment to blow it off. And then eventually uh, he asked me, you know, what are you working on? What are you writing? And at that time, I was cataloging things. I was taking notes. I was just, you know, I knew that certain situations that I was uh, experiencing, I might want want to share one day. So I'd call him for the next seven, eight years, every three months, every six months. And he'd always ask me what I'm working on. And once I was released in 2014, um, that's when I decided I'm going to compile all my notes, get them in a unified form and figure out, you know, when I, when I'm going to write it. So I put my schedule together and nine days later, I had 
about 500 pages written out longhand and then started figuring out the uh, new word 15.0 <laughs> after having had so many years where you know I wasn't touching a computer so figured out that processing system and went from there so you wrote basically pen and paper old school and just uh, let things kind of kind of stream of consciousness flow from your brain onto the paper on a, in a disciplined schedule it was uh, that's pretty amazing man I mean I, I I have to struggle and force myself to stick to a disciplined schedule every single day and it's not easy so that's pretty darn respectable. Where, where did that discipline come from? If I didn't have it before, <laughs> that nine years that I served definitely uh, helped, helped build it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was disciplined even in, in crime. So uh, I've always had a disciplined, you know, constitution, I suspect. Uh, and taking that into whatever adventure I decided to go into just a natural progression so you're you're the kind of personality that if if you had if you wanted to direct your energies in anything you probably would have been extremely extremely successful whatever you chose to do whether it be you know uh, an author or who knows you know you might be one of those guys working at uh caltech or, or or whatever and uh working on satellite technology or something you know I think discipline is the thing that separates people who pretend to do something and people who actually, you know, shut up and actually do it. Or people who talk about doing something and people actually do it. Exactly. Yeah, so there's, so- there's a difference in just saying you're a writer and actually writing. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. It's something that you wake up and you actually do as opposed to talking about it. And that's, you know, everybody wants to produce something. But... Um, you know, very few people actually do, and it's pretty darn impressive that you're able to to stick to it and, and get it done. Uh, take me back to uh, so let's talk about where this book came from. Take me back to where you were in your life and what was going on in your life. Uh, not this, not necessarily the events itself, but what what did your life look like? What did a typical day for 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 you look like when you when you woke up in the morning? You went about your day. What was it like? What was life like for you when? You know, set the table for me, I guess what I'm trying to say, before the events. Okay. Um, Prior to my incarceration, you know, I I came up in the gambling world with bookies and loan sharks. So being around crime, being exposed to crime, being involved in crime, uh, it was an everyday occurrence in some form. Either you were in the planning stage of it you were in the execution stage of it or you were uh, you know covering it, it up in some way so you know it was truly a life lived in crime as a profession what uh, what kind of crimes are we talking about here or, or do you care not to divulge or no no i mean i've already served the time for it so <laughs> but you know <laughs> com- coming up so it you know I, as i said i, I came up with bookies and and loan sharks as uh, as guys that I worked under. So if if you place a bet with me, I just committed a crime the moment that I you know recorded. That's bookmaking. Um, if you if you lose on your end of the bet, you don't pay up or whatever it may be. The moment that I come to you or I jam you up for payment, uh, that's extortion. 
if I have an overt act of any kind, now I may be in a, a situation where I'm being charged with robbery. If I now tell you, don't talk about it, you know, if I tell you this a month later, now I'm witness tampering. So in some way or another, uh, every day, you know, one of those scenarios would present itself, you know, by the nature of the business. Uh, I got involved in the online gambling uh, in the late 90s. And uh, I invested in a buddy's company who, who had started up. And this was in the wild, wild west days of, of online gambling. And, you know, we have, I already had a presence, you know, in, you know, the basic everyday life in L.A. Uh, in the gambling scene. So bringing the online venture to it and tying in my, my association with uh, professional fighters, uh, boxers, I started figuring out ways to uh, merge the two. And uh, that's when we started doing a lot of advertising on, on the backs of boxers. Uh, with goldpalace.com <laughs> and all that, so you know, it was always figuring out where the where you can where you can get in and ink out a couple of pennies. Uh, That's actually pretty darn clever, man. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what boxing gym were you out of? Were you out of uh, boxing gyms here in LA? Yeah, well, back in the early '90s, I I boxed out of Broadway gym. Uh, LA box and you know years later wild card popped up but uh, early LA boxing early boxing was uh, was that the one that was downtown yeah that was in downtown yeah then uh, Mickey Rourke had uh, outlaws gym with uh, uh, Freddie Roach and a couple other guys and Freddie Roach started wild card so you know boxing community is pretty small you can you can go one place and figure out where everyone else is I was actually at Wildcard myself for uh, for a little bit in uh, the mid two thousands. We probably walked past each other, didn't even know it. Right. <laughs> we we could have swapped careers, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very easily. We have uh, we have a lot in common that uh, you know people tend to tend to judge us right off the bat, depending on uh, you know where they what they bring to the conversation and what who they are, you know, based on their preconceived notions. So I get it. So yeah, so talk about the if you if you wouldn't mind take me back to to the time when maybe there's somebody you needed to you know jam up and collect something from. I mean, what what does that conversation look like? I'll give you a scenario. I, I was just speaking with one of my early mentors in the gambling world. It's a it's a guy named uh, Robert uh, Puggy Zajcek. So Puggy, great name. <laughs> yeah, Puggy. Um, he came up. In LA, he's an LA guy, Jewish bookie, and he, he connected in the 70s, 80s with an Italian gangster that was out here in LA who eventually wind up uh, wearing a wire against Puggy and their whole crew, and about 50 some guys were indicted. Uh, this is in the late 80s. But Puggy, he came out and out of the feds for doing, I think, three years for loan shark and bookmaking. And he never looked back. He moved to Vegas. He didn't want much to do with L.A. and a lot of the old fellas. But so Puggy, I was speaking with him recently and I asked him, so a guy makes a bet with you. The guy owns a, uh, a furniture store and the guy can't pay up. What do you do? And Puggy says, I guess I'm in the furniture business, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what it was like for a time. I mean, there'd be times where 
I had a guy who had a, a fur a fur distribution, and here I am with twenty sable mink fur coats in the summer of LA. You know, what am I going to do with these? You know, but that was his way of trying to clear his debt. So it, it's rare you get a guy that just completely refuses to pay. Usually, folks get creative, and in some form, maybe they borrow from someone else or they. They themselves commit an insurance fraud to make it seem like those 20 fur coats were stolen, but they really just paid off their debt, you know. So that's, uh, you know, you, you want to avoid the confrontation because that's what brings on the attention from the law. But someone's owing you 10 grand, 20 grand on the bet. You know, you can't have many, many of those out in the streets. Yeah, I would imagine that will weaken, uh, weaken any kind of credibility. Uh, on the streets, if you don't, uh, if you don't collect, uh, send the signal that it's you know, it, you know, it's it's okay not to not to pay up. So I would imagine that that uh, you know you take what you can and, and uh, keep the reputation intact and try to minimize damage. Is that the idea? Completely. Yeah, yeah. you you can't be a complete Brutus walking around just bopping everyone over the head with a club. <laughs> you know, so you're basically a you're basically a salesman, so to speak. I mean, because convincing people to do what you want them to do, even if it's in their best interest, is not always the easiest thing in the world to do. So basically, you were a salesman. You were selling potential consequences to people. I would imagine. Uh, one part of it was that, yeah. Well, you say convincing them to do what you want them to do, actually convincing them that they should do what they said they would do when they made the, the compact to place the bet. And if they win, we pay out. If they lose, they pay out. So yeah, you, you hate to have to remind an adult that they are the one that voluntarily uh, decided to borrow this money with this interest rate or to make this bet for this team and it goes against them. Uh, or they decide, hey, that's too high of an interest rate when they're a month into it. Well, you didn't say that when you when you took the 50 grand. So yeah, it's just having someone actually honor their word. Now, was there ever a situation where things went terribly wrong that you that you had to deal with? Uh, well, yeah, I, I wrote a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a book about it. Um, it could well, that's the the end result of something having gone wrong. You know, so um, let's let's uh, so let's let's set the table for that situation. So for starters, why Joe Francis? Well, I, I grew up in L.A. I mean, I've been in the club scene. I've been in around the party scene in of, of L.A. So when Girls Going Wild first started coming onto the scenes, it was familiar to anyone who knew the guy from being in the club party scene that here's a here's a dude who's making some decent cash like any other guy around town. He gambled with uh, with my company a couple of different times, so I knew him. I'd been to his home. And bringing the story to about 2003, um, I can always tell you what I was told, in that he was down in Mexico partying with some girls, and one of the girls the next morning wakes up and says that she didn't give consent. I don't know the veracity of, of her story. I never met this person, but 
shortly after that, I was given a, I was, uh, a call came to me, and I went to a meeting, and I was I was told the story that this girl says that she didn't give consent, and I was asked if I would take on the task to, you know, exact some form of revenge where he would understand that he should abandon his ways, and that's when I cooked up the the crime that I eventually was convicted for. Got it. So was this the first time that you were called upon to do something like this, or was this uh, just pretty much routine, or, or maybe not routine, but was this something that you know occurred before, and this was just like another another thing that could happen in the realm of possibility of your day-to-day life, or was this like a completely new thing that just popped up? No, this was uh, this was pretty much you know, conflicts going to happen. You know, you, you would hope that it could be resolved with a, a conversation, and often it was resolved with a conversation. Uh, maybe the conversation takes place where we're sitting across the table and you realize, you know, it's not going to go your way, so you may want to acquiesce to to my demands. You, you hope that a conversation can settle it. You hope that your reputation the folks you're attached to, that their reputation actually means something to the person you're dealing with. But often with a a thief, with a a drug addict, with someone who's just in a bad position, uh, reputations can only go so far. Folks can get a little wiggly and try to slide out of a situation in many ways. You know, I, 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 you can imagine the stories where a guy, well, I'll just call the cops if you jam me up too much. And you're, you're thinking, you know, listen, we're, we, we're both in an illegal act. You placing the bet with me, me accepting the bet, or you uh, borrowing this money <clears throat> into you. We're both in an illegal act, and you want to complicate the situation more by not paying me back okay and now you say you're going to call the cops <laughs> you know, it, it just defies the understanding of we're both in an illegal act but if you take it upon yourself to exert some force to get back what you believe is owed to you you know that's when you now just committed another crime so it's it's not an easy business to be in you know why would anyone ever decide to get into it uh, the action's good at the time we justify all sorts of things to ourselves and you look up and you're you know two miles into this marathon and you realize you know <laughs> i should have stopped at like the 100 yard mark and you know turned around yeah sometimes the only way out is actually going through and uh no, you can't uh you can't always have the luxury of stopping when you want to stop. Or just another sports metaphor or endurance metaphor is if it's a triathlon, you can't just decide, hey, I'm done in the middle of the swim, <laughs> in the swim part of it. So, yeah, I get it. So what was your mindset? This was just uh, when, when you were going through and making your plan. I mean, where, what was the plan? Uh, the plan was to embarrass him in the way that girls had said he had embarrassed him in the way that the girls that he had uh, on the girls going wild had uh, had been duped uh, you know hey my name is becky they raised their shirt show their breasts i'm a girl gone wild so i figured it'd be some poetic justice if if he was placed in that same situation so when he returned 
back to his home, and I grabbed him and you know, uh, restrained him. Having him perform that same act on video was what I actually did, but you know, it, it was meant to embarrass him going forward, and it worked in that people that he knew uh, saw the video, folks around town saw the video, and I eventually used it as part of extortion. But mainly it was about the embarrassment of him being made to do what he's, you know, what, what his whole company was built on. Right. So let's, let's go back to the, let's go back to the day when you actually grabbed him. So let's walk, walk me through that. So what was it like going, I mean, how did you know he was going to be where he was going to be at the time? And was, were you surveilling him? I mean, how easy was it to grab him? Did he put up a fight? Did he know who it was? I mean, just let's let's uh, let's let's talk about that because that's pretty fascinating. I mean, it's a whole other world that people have no idea about. And um, let's dive into that a little bit. Uh, well, he, he lived in Bel Air, and I I knew where he lived because I, I'd been to his house twenty some odd times, different parties, hangout sessions, and uh, I knew him. He knew me. Um, like I say he gambled with my, my company several different times. Um, and, you know, you see the guy on the party saying you're at lunch and conversations. It was just another day in L.A. type of attitude. Going, deciding when I was going to do it, I knew that in L.A. certain nights, certain clubs are happening. You know, they're the spot to be at on certain nights. So on that Wednesday night, I knew where he would be. I also knew that the next day he was leaving to Mexico. So if I'm going to grab him at his house, most likely he's not bringing someone back with him from the club because he has to leave early in the next morning. And right. he really, he, you know, somewhat of a, of a, um, a stickler for how his world is, is lined up. I, so I knew this about him. So he's not going to have someone just hanging out of his house while he's gone. So I had different folks set up at the club as well as on the route that he would take coming back home to advise me when, when he was getting close. And once he, once he entered his house, had a diversion through a little concussion grenade, and that seized him. You know, his attention was, was shocked, which allowed me to then just grab him and put him in some cups. So yeah, that now you understand why I wanted to go back and talk about this because this is like uh, this is like. Uh this is pretty cinematic, man. I mean, if, if you wanted to turn the story into a film, I mean, it's, it's extremely cinematic. I'm picturing you're Robert De Niro with your, with uh, Val Kilmer and a group of your buddies, and you're sitting around the table discussing this. And, uh, you know, you have your, your concussion grenade and everything planned out around all on the route. Like, like, you know, like when they took down that, uh, the truck and they had the, the ambulance ready and they pulled off in an ambulance so I was, as the police were pulling up in the end. I mean, it, it's pretty darn cinematic, man. So a concussion grenade. They fall off the truck sometimes. In <laughs> <laughs> the business that I was in, as I said, you know, why did I have 20 sable mink coats sitting in my, in my, in my storage facility? They fell off the truck, you know. <laughs> and sometimes concussion grenades fall off the truck also. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> so did everything go according to plan when you when you when you grabbed them? I mean, was there anything that you didn't expect? Was it pretty much as you pictured it as as in your mind as going according to plan? 
Uh, yeah, everything went exactly how it was planned to go. He was none the wiser that he that someone was in his home, that I was in his home. Once I had him as a captive, I put the the bag over his head and took him up to his bedroom where I already had set up the um, the camera. So lying him laying him on his bed. And I take off the uh, the bag off his head. He then sees the camera, and he's and I think it clicks to him at that moment what's about to happen. He could be thinking it's uh, it's an Al Qaeda video, and he's about to get beheaded. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah. I mean, the, his his face definitely you know was surprised. This is something that that blew my mind. I mean, you know how you have some of the dumbest criminals videos and or some of the most bumbling things that can go on you know uh, what's that old line by Mickey Rourke uh, in the film you know if you can think of, of five ways to to get away with a crime I can tell you 20 of how you'll get caught I, I can't remember the exact words but you know you can have everything planned you can be as as on the ball as it comes but there are always those unknowns and in this particular case, this was somewhat of comical. So, in the video that was shown in the in the courtroom, you know, you can see that there is uh, had the dildo placed by his face at one point, and <laughs> and he looks to the camera and he says, "You know, my name is Joe Francis. I'm a boy gone wild." Ba 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 ba. So. At one point before the cameras were turned on and without me telling him to do anything, he began to go down on the dildo. And I had to look around the room and think maybe I was on cameras. Like the joke is on me, you know, like this this can't be real. What's he doing that for? Because it was too easy, huh? It, it was too easy. It was too, that's what <laughs> blew me away like I haven't given any orders yet what is he doing <laughs> um, so it was just one of those moments where I'm like well this is this is definitely going to be something that that will never leave my mind so uh, what did you have in mind with the dildo I mean that's got to be something that he was racing through his was racing through his mind I mean what but what did you have in mind for him to well, do with the dildo the whole thing was about instilling in him fear because of what I was told by the girl of what happened to her. So the fear that she had, the, the complete inability to control the situation, to get out of the situ situation she would say she was placed in, that's what I wanted to reverse on him. And to put him in, in a situation where he's completely a captive by someone tougher, stronger, and in command of his physical movements, which is why I eventually got the charge of kidnapping that's the nearly the textbook definition of it so yeah that's that's exactly what I wanted is to instill fear in him going forward anytime that he turned his key to enter his house I wanted him to be stunned not knowing what was waiting for him on the other side of the door have that question in the back of his mind so yeah I mean I can imagine every single day for the rest of uh, rest of someone's life after something like something like that going through uh, going through something like that not knowing if a date, a 
girlfriend, a wife, and just escalating, even a family. You know, decades from now, there's a family and, you know, kids or whatever, and wondering if that's going to be the day you open your door and and uh, concussion grenade and surprise. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the purpose of, of why I did each step, why each step happened, why it was necessary. And it it worked, you know, it it uh, it definitely had him on alert. He, he eventually had uh, two or three guys on the security squad around the clock going forward. Then later that year, it was uh, around September of 2004. I committed the crime in January of 2004. So in September of 2004, he was in uh, Moscow, Russia. And I was there at the time as well. Now, he didn't know that I'm the one who had committed the crime against him. So he's there, and I hooked him up with a buddy of mine who had him in, in some of the clubs there. And, you know, you can pretty much order up anything you want at this particular club. And he's there with a couple of buddies, and they get some girls, and they go off to their respective rooms. And he, he then blames the girl that he has, he says, she stole five grand from him. Now, these girls, they're not going to steal because who they work for. They're not going to steal from the clients. And he starts going off on on the girl and, and the guy that runs the place. And you don't know who I am. You don't know who I am. And they say, yeah, we know who you are. We saw, we saw the video. And he's, he's dumbfounded. He's, you know, what? What do you mean you saw the video? You know, I'll pay you. I'll pay you. Yeah, we don't want your money. You know, you got about an hour to get out of this country. So you know, he, his buddy scurried and left. But so here he is, completely around the world, and he's being told that they've already seen the video. So <laughs> it worked. It worked a little too good, and, and of course that only you know revived him and wanting to find out who did this and you know, where is this video. Yeah, you would think that it would uh, change a little bit of his behavior and reset his reset his actions, but nevertheless. Uh Sometimes a man is who a man is, regardless. Exactly. Yeah. Through and through, he he's got, he he did what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And granted, the money helped him because it it justified everything he did. Uh, do you think he would have been the same person without the money? Yeah. I, well, I knew him prior to the money, and I knew folks that went to high school and college with him, and he was exact same person the money just allowed him to do it on a grander scale got it so how long were you how long were you uh how long were you with him in his residence when he was uh filleting the 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 dildo i was there i was there for two hours before he before he came back gotcha another two hours of him there so I imagine you wanted to be there early just in case he came back early or unforeseen circumstances, I would imagine. Yeah, get a lay of the land and make sure that everything is how I remembered it and, you know, escape routes are, uh, right. are available. Man, it's almost as if you should write a book about this. <laughs> <laughs> I may have. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty fascinating. So... Um, Federal marshals that uh, that couldn't have been fun. Was it something you were ex- okay? So first of all, how how was it discovered that it was you as the individual? 
how do you do damage control so that it doesn't go past you to your to your employers and and all that? I mean, that there's a lot of time back there. So 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 let's I guess start with the first part of the question. How did it come to be that it was revealed that you were the the uh, the the filmmaker, so to speak? <laughs> Very good. So October 2014, I'm in Vegas at Nikki Hilton's birthday party. Friends with Nikki, friends with Paris, and a mutual friend of ours. It decides for unknown reasons to tell Paris when they're sharing a post-cordial embrace uh, that he sent me. He's the one who ordered up the job to be done against Joe Francis. And she's cataloging whatever he's telling her. And the next day she calls Joe Francis and tells him, yo, it was Riley who did this to you. He, Joe Francis patches her into the detectives that were on the case. And as the detective said, this is the first time that they ever heard my name. And that, that began the investigation into me. Uh, now, I had on gloves the entire time, but because I had been in this guy's home in the past, a fingerprint of mine was in the home, but in a common area amongst 1,500 other fingerprints, you know, of folks that had been to his home. Um, he, he'd have big parties there, so it was not uncommon to have, you know, a lot of folks there and you touch a wall, you touch the door, you touch this or whatever. So being that a fingerprint of mine was found in the home, that was enough along with Paris Hilton's statement of what she had been told. That was enough to, to get a warrant to get me. That was October of 2008. I was arrested in March of 2005 and when the U.S. Marshals snatched me, I talk about it in the prologue, you know, uh, all, they, all they had on the warrant was, you know, they had my name is Darnell Riley, my name is Darnell Riley Perez, no one ever calls me Darnell, it's all, you know, everyone knows me as Riley, Riley Perez. So when they had the warrant for my arrest, it, you know, they asked me, you're Darnell Riley? And um, I'm objecting, no, my name is, you know, they said, you're Darnell Riley. Yeah. All right, I realize whatever name they have, it doesn't matter, they have my body. That's all they want, you know, I, I could say my name is Tyler Knight, they didn't care, <laughs> they had my body. So I didn't know I had no idea that I was even being looked at. I, in hindsight, that was my next question. Were there any clues or anything that tipped you off that you were under investigation, or were they just pretty behind the scenes and covert about it? Well, in all in hindsight, is all I can look at at this point. At that point, uh, where once I found out that Paris is the one who told Joe, which got the ball rolling, I then think about I was with her for her birthday. Uh, in February, I was at the club with her about a week before my arrest. And I remember walking in and going to the area that she was at and walking up to her and Nikki and their stunned looks. And, you know, in hindsight, I can think, OK, what was that look for? Uh, if the look was, oh, shit, he's he's still out. <laughs> you know, uh, other friends of ours, her partner in the uh, one night in Paris video was my buddy Rick Solomon and he knew about 
that they were coming for me. A week before my arrest, I ran into him and I, I could see he wanted to say something, but he never did. So I knew I know that he knew about the arrest, but chose, you know, to remain, you know, in the middle of the road. Uh, so looking at things like that, you wonder, you know, had someone said, hey, they're coming for you, run. You know, it would have gave me enough chance to sanitize my uh, my apartment because that's where they found a copy of the videotape in my apartment. So that evidence wouldn't have existed. Yeah, people definitely have tells whether they realize it or not, whether it's body language or voice inflection or things they choose not to say or 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 things like that. And it's amazing. Sometimes uh, people's tells are, are more powerful and more more informative than than what the words actually are that are coming out of their mouths. Right. And I would imagine that you 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 are a professional picking up on tells to get an idea of people's intentions before before they actually did things. So, yeah, yeah. I, and at the moment, I'm thinking, what's this guy on? I mean, why is he all nervous and fidgety? I chalked it up to he's trying to hide from me that he's on something. Uh, why was she looking at me so shocked? I don't know what what was going on at the moment that she would have to be shocked to see me. Us running into each other in the club, us you know, seeing each other on, uh, on the, on the streets is not a big thing. So why is she shocked? I had nothing to attach it to, you know, it was the farthest thing from my mind that she would have, have already made a statement against me. Right. So when you were apprehended, what was that like? I mean, were they guns drawn and, uh, and, uh, overwhelming force or was it tapping you on the shoulder, walking down the street? Just, uh, walk, walk us through that. So I was I was consulting with a buddy, with this lady in Bel Air who was who was going. She was locked in this protracted divorce, um, multi million dollars at stake, and it was pretty intense. And uh, you know we had a security squad that was guarding the home, and my, my uh, me and another associate we were handling the negotiations for her with the ex husband. So. I took a break and I was returning home. So I'm driving straight down Sunset from Bel Air to my place in Hollywood. And I don't know, you know how it, you can look at things in hindsight and wonder, okay, it's a nice sunny day. Oh, man, there's no traffic. You know, it's like all the lights turn green for me. You know, <laughs> it was one of those <laughs> moments where it's like I was being carried back to my place where they were waiting for me. And I just had no problems. Like, oh, I look at the gas tank. Oh, it's on full. Oh, it's great. Beautiful. Uh, Bluebird sits on your shoulder. Right. You know, maybe he was whispering <laughs> something that I didn't catch. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I pull into my driveway. I had a real narrow driveway, cobblestone. And I pull into it. And every day that I get out of my car, I have my pistol in my glove box. And every day I usually holster my pistol, step out of the car. Whatever was playing in the universe, I didn't even go, I didn't even think about the gun. So I step out of the car and I see a minivan racing up the driveway. And my first thought was, is this a hit? You know, like some guys are coming for me. Then I see the, the uh, well, first, initially my thought was, 
this isn't one of my neighbors. This isn't a car I'm used to seeing in this neighborhood. And once it stopped about maybe 15 feet away from me, the driver, a Filipino guy, uh, it's about the same height as I was, he didn't have his gun out. The passenger drew his gun. And later the, the, uh, the driver told me he, he was supposed to chase me down if I had ran. That's why he didn't pull his gun out. But the, the passenger, he pulls his gun and, you know, that moment where everything is kind of muffled, you sound. I, I know that their, their mouths are moving, but I really, I can't hear anything. Yeah, the adrenaline dump does yeah. that. Then it comes back to me. And that's when I hear, you know, phrase for, and then I see the cavalry coming from behind. And, okay, I comply, I get cuffed. So uh, this is ironic. This is kind of the same... Uh... The same kind of planning and execution of, uh, of, of acquiring you is the same kind of thing that went into acquiring Mr. Francis. Completely. It was the same tactical. And, and this is one thing that anyone who's in the criminal life, uh, anyone from a military standpoint, anyone realizes that, you know, you can be got, you can be a victim at any point, no matter how on point you are no matter how many jobs no matter how many missions you've been on you're never you know just completely above the fray you know we're humans you devised a great plan to go get someone someone else can devise a great one to come get you and that's what happened so once they had me you know, like i said they you know went through the identification you are darnell riley whatever okay let's go let's get to the next stage of this and so away I went. This was the first time that anything like this has ever happened. They had no idea who you were. You were completely off the radar, which is the way you wanted it to be. So what, what were you expecting at this point? Well, I, I didn't know what it was for. The U.S. Marshals, they were only there to apprehend. They didn't care what the charges were, who they were against. Gotcha. They, handed, they handed me over to the custody of LAPD once, once I was down at the Parker Center. They're holding this uh, body retention. So it was interesting because I, they left my cell phone in my back pocket. And I was able, while I, while I was waiting for the detectives to come and interrogate me, I was able to make a couple of calls. And uh, I called one to a buddy of mine. And he says, you know, hey, I'm working on the bell. I just heard about it. You know, give me a moment. I then called my, my then girlfriend who... I didn't know, but she was she was in the next interrogation room over. She wasn't arrested, but they had brought her down to the station. I asked her, hey, what do you know? And she says, they say it's something with Joe Francis. And, you know, that's when it became all too real. I then knew that I could have a conversation with the detectives because they weren't going to be able to surprise me with why I was being held. So I hang up the phone from her, and the detectives come in about five minutes later, and they ask if I want to talk to them. Being that I have a heads up, okay, let's talk. You know, And they go through a series of questions. Hey, we're going to throw some names out there, and just tell me if you know any of these people. They throw out about three names of folks that I know. They throw Joe Francis' name out as the fourth name. I say, yeah, I know him. He's a friend of mine. They go to another name, the detective Coleman. He was the, uh, playing the tough cop out of the two. 
he says, well, let's, let's, let's cut the chase. You know what we're here for. <laughs> I'm just playing, you know, playing alone. I don't, I don't know. What are you talking about? The kidnapping of Joe Francis. So, you know, I let him go through his moment, and I just put up my objections. I don't what do you mean? God, come on. And I heard about that. I, I thought it was all bullshit. I heard about it. Interrogation went on for another hour. My whole thing was to try to get as much information as, as I could out of them. Uh, of course, I didn't admit to anything. It was just me taking in what they're saying. So how was the, uh, how was the trial experience? What was that like? Uh, well, we went to a preliminary hearing which is the equivalent of a, of a pre-trial. That's where the district attorney, they present the evidence to the judge, which then allows the court to make the determination, do we have enough evidence to, to proceed to trial? So this also allows my, my side, defense, to, uh, to question the evidence, to question the, the veracity of it, to question the strength of what's being thrown up and we already had we already knew enough information about joe francis and his personal dealings in business and our whole goal was to score as, as many uh, points as we could against his character uh, for a business that had no attachment to the crime that i committed against um, it, it would all be about creating this scenario where they realize he's not going to be a reliable witness to a jury if we catch him committing perjury four, five, six times as we did, uh, there's no way they can present him to the jury after having already been caught in a lie. You know? Sure. So that was our goal, and it actually worked. And we attacked his credibility, his business dealings, where the money was hidden. This, the DA didn't know where the questioning was going, but his personal attorney understood. He was in the audience, and he rushes towards the I mean, it was real dramatic in that he's rushing towards the uh, the witness booth, the bailiff, the judge. They're both going for their guns, but the judge understood. <laughs> the judge completely understood what was happening, and the judge, and you know, as the guy is not breaking his strides, are you a member of the California bar? Yeah, you can confer with your client. So that was real dramatic, and I, I look over at my attorney Ron Richards, and he's sitting there with a with a nice. Cheshire cat dreaming on his face, just reveling in that he just he just scored the victory. Yeah, so it was a real battle. The DA sitting there dumbfounded, not knowing where this line of questioning was going. And uh, you know, the next twenty questions, Joe Francis, you know, pleads the fifth, and uh, eventually my attorney goes back into answering more questions. You know, the guy's such an egomaniac that. You know, my, simple stuff like my attorney saying, so you you had this 2002 Bentley. Oh, yeah, yeah, but now I have a 2005, I have a new one. You know, <laughs> that wasn't the question, you know. He was incapable of just answering a question. He had to let you know. He had to leave with his bank account. And right. knowing how much of an egomaniacal character he was, that was the attack. And here, here may be the biggest, stupidest blunder on this part, as well as on the part of the district attorney. If you just told the truth, I'd be doing a life sentence right now. Uh, or I would have had to take a deal for 30 years or 20 years, something much more tougher than 
what I did get. So on the night of the crime, he says that I had a, a blue steel semi-automatic handgun. Everyone knows that to be a, uh, a black nine millimeter. Uh, they don't find that type of gun in my home. They find a shotgun, uh, a tech nine, uh, all, all sorts of revolvers that I collected. So at the preliminary hearing, he points out the revolver as being the gun, which is now a silver uh, non-semi-automatic gun. Right. And when he points that out, I, I write a note to my attorney saying that gun he's saying is the gun. I didn't come into possession of that gun until six months after the crime that I committed against him. My attorney goes to the court records and looks at that gun serial number, attaches it to a, a police report from six months after and realizes, okay, here's another in. We got this guy in, uh, another angle to prove that he's lying. So in the cross-examination, he just sticks with it. Uh, Ron, once he questioned the detective, the detective said it clearly, there's no way that's the gun. It's impossible. There's no way Riley would have had that gun six months prior to the, you know, him gaining possession of it. It's moments like that that stick out in the district attorney's mind that, that causes him to say, okay, we have to make a plea bargain. Right. And that's where I, that's where I was with what's the number that we can both agree with. So it was a negotiation, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, you know, my attorneys said we can't start so low that it's looked at as a disrespectful gesture. So, you know, what do you want to do? I was like, well, let's say three years and I'll go home. He said, like, we can't do that. <laughs> so so uh, he says, let's start at eight. They're going to start at 12 and maybe we can meet in the middle at 10. And that's exactly what happened. Gotcha. So what was it like? Uh, it was it was Cochrane. Was that where you were? Uh, that was the first prison that I went to, yeah, uh, from, from the county jail going into the prison system. Uh, Corcoran is where I landed first. Sorry, yeah. So what, what, was, uh, what was your experience there? Initially, I was tossed in the uh, PHU. Uh, that's where guys that have high-profile cases, um, there's the Juan Corona guy. He was convicted for killing, like, 15 migrant farm workers in the 80s. Uh, Charlie Manson was back there. Sirhan Sirhan was back there. Uh, yeah. Killing, uh, Robert Kennedy. So these are guys that they ne don't necessarily want to walk the main line. They're not in protective custody for, for having, you know, ratted on anyone or anything like that. That's a separate situation for guys like that but these are guys whose cases are just too high profile for them to be in the main line um in the past where charlie manson was attacked they know that some folks might attack him so that they can have a um you know it's a trophy kill you know so that's where i was initially taken um and weeks into it i went before a committee and i told them I'm not asking for this type of protection. I don't want it. And so I had to sign off on a, a waiver saying that, that I why would you why would you do that though? I mean that's that 
Definitely not something that a lot of people would choose to do if they were if they had that option. What 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 made you decide to do that? Well, there's only about forty guys in that unit. That means for the next nine years, I would only see those forty guys. And as despicable as uh, as the crimes are that I committed or anyone else, uh, I'd much rather be able to walk around and see other folks have conversations, interact with other folks than solely seeing Charlie Manson and. And Sirhan Sirhan and Juan Corona on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I, I get pissed at you, Charlie Manson. I still got to see you tomorrow. I, I, I can't avoid you, you know. We're the only ones in this unit. Uh, it just, it, it, it would have been as if the walls, well, yeah, the walls in the prison are keeping us all in there. But those walls in that particular unit would have, you know, are further crashing in on me. So I just wanted to be able to interact with, you know, the, the wider population, which is the main line. Got it. So you're out and what is your, I mean, what, what did your life look like when you, when you finally got released? So after having been released, I knew that I wanted to start writing. Um, so, you know, I, I was I was pretty fortunate that close friends of mine, like Scotty, uh, like my good buddy Frankie Lyles, uh, they all, you know, from the boxing scene, other buddies from the gambling world that remained supporters of mine, um, they, they, they helped however they could, however I needed them to. I wasn't requiring much. I live a pretty Spartan lifestyle. So um, have living with my girlfriend, at our place in the Marina del Rey, I got the water right there. So it was the perfect place for me to start writing. And I, I set my schedule and I just, I started banging it out. And I knew that at some point, uh, for me to be at a point where my pat, my crimes are parenthetical, you know, where you can then read my, my writings and say, oh, wow, this guy has an art, uh, he has an, uh, an eye for art, he has a hand, he has a mind that is working to tell us a great story. At some point, I know for me to get past my crime, you know, folks are going to have to look at me as a writer, as an artist, as someone who's beyond just the crime. Uh, and I figured writing about it would be one way for me to get there. You know, I've worked in, in entertainment since I've been out, and the folks I've worked with don't know about my past or didn't know about my past. So, you know, it, it hasn't been too much of a hindrance except on the personal level where I'm dealing with family and friends who, you know, have their own issues to deal with regarding my past. I, uh, I completely understand that 100%. You have a unique life experience that very few people even have a glimpse into besides what's fictionalized on what they see, you know, on TV or film or whatever. Uh, you got to see life in, in, in two unique perspectives. Uh, uh, the social life at the highest levels in Los Angeles and the underworld at the same time. And I think the juxtaposition of two complete incongruent things like that, which most people think are incongruent, which obviously are not, I think that's what makes a pretty fascinating and compelling story. And... Um, yeah, man. I mean, I, I definitely, this is a very cinematic story you told, and there's no doubt in my mind that if, uh, if you pursued it, your, your what is real, it could be adapted to a, to a film. 
it's really an amazing story, man. Well, thank you. Cool. Um, anything you wanted to say or add or tell people that maybe, because I know once a book goes to press and it's out there and it's done, then maybe you're sitting at a Q&A and you're thinking, shit, maybe I should have put this in the, in the text itself. Is there <laughs> anything you wanted to add? There's that old saying, no man can do what he knows is wrong until he's first convinced himself that he's right and justified. And that is the guiding thoughts. That's, you know, that's something that sticks with me and that, you know, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Well, I justified it. I came to the uh, conclusion that what I was going to do, how I was going to do it was justified and righteous for these reasons, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Yeah. Right. With that, I accept my station in life. I accept the punishment. I, in taking the plea bargain, I only needed something that I believe I could have lived with. And that ten years is what is what worked, and uh, I'm grateful that it's over. And you know what? Um, I'm grateful that you're able to sit down and have this conversation. It's a really fascinating story, and I, I really enjoyed listening uh, to the ins and outs. And uh, you speak in a very direct and very uh, conversational way that allows us to, to live vicariously through you as you're taking us through these experiences. And it's, 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 it's amazing. It's really amazing. There's no doubt in my mind this book's going to be a huge success for you, man. It's a great story. And there's no doubt in my mind that if you chose to pursue it further, you could crank out more books, maybe venture into fiction based on your stories, which a lot of people do. But yeah, th thanks, man. Um, thanks for joining us in this conversation. This was really incredible. It was pretty eye-opening for me, and I appreciate the fact that you were you're willing to share your story with the world. Pretty cool of you. Thank you. Thank you Thank for having you. me.